The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anne from Pikachu Podcast joins me to talk about the music of Pokemon Mystery Dungeon Red and Blue Rescue Team. These initial entries in Pokemon's most successful side series have a number of interesting facets, including being the only side games with a full-on remake, which adds a third version to every tune. Luckily, the two of us are more than up to the task of covering this soundtrack. If you still need more, though, we have the usual game discussion after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from Piggy Podcast, and we're doing yet another Pokemon side game music discussion. We're working our way through Generation 3, the Ruby and Sapphire generation, and We've made it to, with all due respect to the other side games, which also have very good music uh, in many cases, a set of games that I've really anticipated ever since we started this. Uh, This time, we're going to be talking about the music of Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, Red and Blue Rescue Team. So this is a pair of games that are split between the Game Boy Advance Red Rescue Team and the Nintendo DS Blue Rescue Team which is kind of an interesting arrangement. Um, But of course, it's the first in the Mystery Dungeon Pokemon side series. The side series is beloved not just for its music, but also for the story and gameplay. Obviously, we will be mostly talking about the soundtrack there. Let me get a few basic facts out of the way before we get too deep into this. This was originally released in Japan on November 17th, 2005. Let's see, it was released in North America... In uh, September 18th, 2006, Australia later in September, European Union was in November of 2006, and then Korea got that in August of 2007. And uh, I should also mention that if you want to play the original versions of these games, as well as, I believe, the Explorers Mystery Dungeon games, I believe all of those are available on the Virtual Console on the Wii U, not the original Wii but the Wii U. And in a little bit of a twist on this, this is, to the best of my knowledge, the only Pokemon side game that has a remake. Back last year in March, March 6th, they released Mystery Dungeon Rescue Team DX, or something to that effect, but it's basically a combined remake of Red Rescue Team and Blue Rescue Team. That makes it very special and kind of shows the power of the Mystery Dungeon subseries. So, Anne, uh, I'd kind of like to get your impressions of this game when it originally came out. First of all, it's a, it's a roguelike, which is sort of a subset of the RPG genre where you go around what's usually a randomly generated dungeon combating monsters. Um, the, the actual name of the genre comes from the original Rogue, which was like a late 70s or early 80s text-based computer game that used similar concepts. I'm kind of curious, did you have any experience with this genre beforehand, or, or what did you think about when this when this game originally came out? Well, as far as, like, when the game originally came out, like, I mostly just thought it was fun. I'm not kind of as into gaming enough to know what these terms mean, so, like, I do believe I was familiar with these types of, I don't know, these types of games and dungeon crawling and the like, but not enough in the sense that I would know that that's what you call it and be excited because it is a this type of game. I just, I picked it up and I played it and it was a great deal of fun. It was, it, it, it was, a, I guess, a little different than anything Pokemon related that I had played before. And that was new and exciting. So I had played a port, I guess, of the original Rogue on a computer that someone had ported to, I guess, the Macintosh platform. Um, it's obviously been ported many times. The actual, that there are many 
similar games. And in fact, Mystery Dungeon itself predates this Pokemon iteration by at least back into the Super Nintendo era in the 90s. Um, so it does actually go back a fair way just within the Mystery Dungeon series, and there are, are other entries in it. So I kind of knew what to expect when this came in. To, to be honest, um, the main thing I, I kind of knew to expect that the difficulty uh, would be pretty brutal um, going in. Now, it doesn't have the, like, the Pokemon Mystery Dungeon games still aren't as, as uh, difficult as some of the stuff you'll see in, like, the original Rogue and stuff like that. It's, it is geared more towards the Pokemon franchise and the expected sort of difficulty curve there. But uh, overall, I did enjoy it. I played it a lot, um, as well as the the uh, sequels that came afterwards. So I have to say I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm not sure at what point, uh, seeing as how it's probably the biggest side series in Pokemon, not counting like Go, I'm not sure exactly when it reached that point, but it obviously made an impression on the broader fan base and stuff like that. Oh, definitely, definitely. All right, well, with a new side series, it may not be surprising, we have some uh, a new company and a couple of new folks to talk about. Um, as far as the company that did the development of, of this and, and most of the other Mystery Dungeon games, there's Spike Chunsoft. I, I think some people might pronounce it Chunsoft. It looks like the official pronunciation is Chunsoft. I'll try and stick to that. But in any case, I do know that they were founded in uh, 1984. They are notable for having worked on the first five Dragon Quest games. So I believe that would be all the ones that were on the NES slash Famicom, back when it was known as Dragon Warrior, and at least one on the Super Famicom. Um, you may also know them from Warrior's Way, which is one of the 3DS Street Pass uh, DLC games. And apparently they're also a Japanese publisher for some Western-developed titles. Uh, they're still active in that area uh, as of late. Uh, I, I found out that they did, the, I guess, the Japanese publishing for Cyberpunk 2077. So that's a, they're definitely active uh, within the last year or so in that realm as well. And did you have any thoughts on Chunsoft? I don't have a lot of uh, thoughts on Chunsoft. Um, like, it is a kind of just interesting in the sense that, yeah, we're kind of moving into a different a different company to work on these games, a different, I don't know, sensibility approaching these games. And I don't want to, like, read too much into it, but you can definitely see, like, a different mentality in Mystery Dungeon than many of the games that came before. So that is an interesting thing to notice, I think. Yeah, there's definitely some framing differences, and it takes some risks that the main series games and even other side games generally wouldn't take, uh, which is is fairly interesting. So it ended up being kind of a little bit, not a completely blank slate, but certain parts of it were, I guess, available that wouldn't be otherwise. Mm -hmm. All right, well, there were two main composers who worked on this game. There's uh, Arata Iyoshi and Asushiro... Ishizuna. I hope I said those about right. Now, we were able to find a fair bit of information on one of them. Uh, Arata Iyoshi, I found out some of his other credits include, let's see, Beat Mania, Ninjala. He also has some solo work, and in fact, he put out a, I guess, not game-related album last year in 2020, so he's certainly active there. And what did you find out about uh, Arata? Yeah, so um, Yoshi here, he's... Uh He's got a sound studio called uh, Sheen Sound Design, um, and he's got a Twitter, Arata underscore SS Design, and that is worth checking out if you're really interested in music. Um, he does seem to write uh, almost exclusively in Japanese, but a little Google Translate can help you a bit. Um, but it's got links to like a bunch of blogs that he runs, his studio site, and it looks like um, he kind of... Tweets a lot about, like, the equipment he uses. It looks like he um, offers up uh, some uh, snippets of music that he allows other people to use in their projects. You know, um, obviously subject, you know, you can't monetize copyright works and things, but you get to use them. So, it, you know, if that's kind of your scene, he might be worth checking out. Um, and I listened to his uh, album. Let's see. I think it's the, is it the Eth? 
Noplex album. Yes, Little Wing from that. I listened to a bunch of songs on that that were really quite lovely and kind of, I could see some of his influences here in Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. Yeah, so some interesting stuff out there. If you like the music from these games, I think that sounds like a, a pretty good way to sort of learn more about that particular uh, composer. All right. And then the other one, let's see, Asuhiro Ishizuna. Um, we were not able to find as much information. That's not to say he hasn't done anything else. He definitely has. One of his most recent credits that I was able to find was on, speaking of uh, genres named after the games that created them, the Metroidvania game Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. This was a a Kickstarter game that has actually a, a well has a couple retro throwback games and then one main modern platform game, which is I believe the the Ritual of the Night game. It's sort of a spiritual successor to Castlevania Symphony of the Night and other uh, later Castlevania games like that. But uh, and was there anything else you were particularly able to find there? Not much. I do have like a. A credit that he's a member of the Noisy Croak Company, a sound production company. But yeah, mostly this guy seems to be a very low profile, like either we're looking in the wrong places or maybe he just likes by choice to not be a huge public figure. The one picture of him on the internet, he's not even looking at the camera. He might just like to sit and do his work. (laughs) Some musicians are like that, especially yeah. if they're not, you know, touring musicians and stuff like that. They like to be known by their work rather than their face, mm-hmm. even regardless, not a judgment on their face or anything like that. But that's, you know, that's a fair choice, especially if, like you said, if you're going to do works for hire. Uh, both of these seem to be, rather than uh, Chunsoft like employees, they seem to be uh, contractors uh, who have done a, a lot of different things. So usually the next thing we talk about is kind of an overall style for the music of the game. There are some definite through lines uh, in this and also the Mystery Dungeon side series as a whole. However, this has really a fairly diverse palette. Um, There are a lot of different genres we'll, we'll talk about with the songs we talk about on this one. And I assume that was your observation as well. I would agree with that. Yeah, there's definitely some through line on kind of chiptune style music. And I can see a lot of Arata Iyoshi's music, like his kind of new agey, very melodic sensibility. I can see that now that I've listened to some of his albums, some of his personal work. But for the most part, you're right. It's it's a wide swath of different types of musicality. Now, it, the other thing we kind of got to talk about here is the, uh, from a technical perspective, this is a little bit of a fusion of styles that way. So to sort of clarify that, remember, this is a game that exists both on the Game Boy Advance and the Nintendo DS. And I guess if you count them, uh, the re-release, the Nintendo Switch, as a result, uh, I think they were a little constrained and they had to make sure that all their compositions worked, technically speaking, on both the... Game Boy Advance hardware as well as the DS hardware. Yes, technically, the DS does have most of the Game Boy Advance hardware, if not all of it, in there for backwards compatibility. And in fact, uh, if you own an original or light DS that has both the DS and the Game Boy Advance card slots, you can actually communicate between the two games as some some titles can. I, I think that also affects, because like there, you'll hear instruments that are very clearly very lo-fi, uh, that are sort of like from the backwards compatible sound hardware within the Game Boy Advance itself, the very basic, you know, like triangle and sine wave channels. Um, but you also hear sample channels for sampled instruments, and actually those tend to be a little bit, those tend to sound considerably better on the DS, uh, just because the DS has better sample architecture for that. That was kind of a mouthful, and I don't know if you noticed any of that or wanted to comment on it, but... Well, I'm, I'm nodding like I know what you're saying, but um, th- this is definitely your area of expertise, but that's kind of, I don't know, that's very interesting and like that this game is kind of, that it, that it has, I guess, just a unique quality to both its technical hardware as well as its its story and its sound and like all the other things that make this game very unique. 
Yeah, the sound, especially on the DS, is almost like someone hardware-wise mashed like an NES and a Super Nintendo together and had them sync up with each other to produce sound. And, you know, we'll discuss uh, how limiting that was, how that kind of works, but it definitely affects the overall musical tone of the game. I wanted to very much point that out, that they had to maintain some level of compatibility, and that seems to have been reflected on a technical level. All right, well, we've done what we usually do. We did take a little bit of a break last time around with Pokemon Troze, but this time we're back to our usual formula. Anne and I have each picked out three songs, and we're going to go through them. Let's see, I picked the main theme of the game, the Sinister Woods, and the Great Canyon tracks. And what did you pick? I picked Dream, Silent Chasm, and Escape Through the Snow. So yeah, chronologically, we only kind of cover about the first third to one half of the game, so <laughs> we will spoil a little bit here. There's a lot of stuff we could have picked out very easily. There's yeah. a, a ton of material here, as those of you who have played the game certainly know, but we still decided we had to kind of keep it to our usual three each, just to sort of maintain some level of sanity. <laughs> But uh, appropriately enough, we're going to start off with the main theme. And um, I have a couple different uh, adjectives and other stuff for this. I I gave it, one word I used to describe it was kind of jaunty, but it has kind of an up and down quality. And being that this is the sort of main theme of the game, and there's been many more games in this sub-series since, it's not surprising that uh, it's used in various forms throughout the game. But, uh, you know, obviously in a game like this, since you're going to many diverse places and stuff like that, and there's a lot of walking in this game, um, I, I think the uh, the jaunty uh, adjective fits pretty well. And what are your thoughts on that? I I really like that you use the word jaunty because that, yeah, that seems to sum it up quite, quite well. And it, it's just got a nice little energy to you, it that just kind of speaks of adventure, I guess, and, and you know, exploring and... I don't know, moving, going out, and like having a little pep in your step. Yeah, and and the up and down quality sort of ties into that as well, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of the the gameplay and also kind of the the story and stuff. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to point out here, and this is a theme that goes through even the modern or the more recent like 3DS mystery dungeon games, is the Celtic influence. It, unfortunately, I'm not the biggest like expert or anything on Celtic music, but with the the instruments that are used here, as well as in a number of other tracks, that is one of the through lines through here, as well as through the series. And I I don't know how much of a Celtic music expert uh, you may or may not be, but what are your (laughs) thoughts there? I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I do listen to a lot of it. Uh, Yeah, I don't... Some tracks are definitely a lot more strong in that vein than others, but... Yeah, definitely a lot of, again, the way I I really feel like Arata kind of has this kind of just in the way he composes in general, but like a lot of the little trills and arpeggios and just the way the uh, the chords work in some tracks. Again, I don't feel it as much in this theme as I do in some others, but I want to say Dorian mode, but I'm probably wrong. But there are like the ways um, Celtic chords work that just is very specific to that genre and it just creates a feeling inside of you that's unique and a lot of tracks in this game just have you know what could sounds like very stereotypical and evocative but then like some some note in the chord just changes it a little bit and then it just creates a different feeling so yeah, I can see how a lot of people like feel the Celtic influence coming through these very like video gamey chip tuney tracks. Yeah, so definitely wanted to point that out. In a way, I think we'll be bringing this up later. It it, it does kind of also uh, mirror some of the stuff, especially in like the Crown Tundra DLC for Sword and Shield. And I think we'll be bringing up some of that later. But uh, I, I think a good uh, opener to the game, and it does appear in a number of other things there. I think it's almost certainly uh, in part of the end credits, uh, but gets gets the game off to a good start and grabs your attention to this new side series. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, Anne, the first one you picked is Dream. Now, speaking of Dream, uh, the quote I have for this one is toss and turn. Why don't you go into this one? Why'd you pick it and what struck you about it? Yeah. So uh, Dream is kind of, it's the track that plays when your character is having those dream sequences where you kind of get Gardevoir's backstory, not to spoil things too much. I really like it because it's a track that is both like really sweet and kind of relaxing like you expect for a dream but then it also goes places where it is slightly more somber and can allow for a bit more um serious conversation to play out like they kind of end up having with God of War at points um so toss and turn is an interesting way to describe it but yeah like it it kind of goes to a little bit of movement and a little bit relaxy, a little bit sweet, a little bit heavy, and just kind of keeps going back between like those tones with these very, um, these very interesting little bells that add a weight to the track. And yeah, it can kind of take you to a place where you're, where you're both happy and you're both relaxed and also maybe a little bit sad. And I so I picked it for that because it, it's a a track that is both what you would expect from something like Dream, like it doesn't feel wrong, but it's also doing a lot of things you don't expect. Yeah, and I should point out that um, the the tune used here is uh, I think the the underlying uh, melody, the d d d d, and then the sort of I'm not sure exactly the shimmer is maybe not the right word, but. Uh, is also used actually a little bit earlier in the game during the personality survey, which is a, a major part of most of the mystery dungeon games. Although in, in more modern games, they do let you skip it if you want to directly select your starter. <laughs> but yeah, one of the reasons I put down toss and turn is just because uh, it's sort of trying to make sense of something uh, that that isn't quite fully formed as many dreams are. They don't quite always make sense. They often don't actually. <laughs> And, you know, and some of that is neurological, you know, certain parts of your brain are active when you're dreaming and work in different ways than they do when you're awake. Any other kind of kind of thoughts on, on that one, Anne? I, I think we've kind of said it like it's just it, it's a very interesting track, which like doesn't seem like really high praise in a whole soundtrack of interesting tracks. Um, but I thought it had some very unique qualities to it that made it stand out a bit. Making My Way Any Way That I Can has a longer history than you might be aware of. It doesn't go super far back, but the earliest version I found is by Winona Judd on the soundtrack to the 1996 Whoopi Goldberg business comedy The Associate. The song would then show up on a Marsha Hines album in 1999, which was soon followed by the Billy Piper version you're probably familiar with. Each of these features a different arrangement, but the more electronic instrumentation in Piper's rendition is probably what made it the choice for the Pokemon soundtrack. As for the lyrical content of the song, the theme of strength overcoming adversity results in an experience that I think would have fit in very well on To Be a Master. What's most interesting, however, is the way phrases that were originally intended as metaphors become literal when applied to Pokemon. The source material is a game, in which you cross rivers and climb mountains. If you really want to stretch it, there's also reference to strength. Not bad for a song that was probably written before the games were even out in Japan. In any event, feel free to check out those other versions, there's at least one more that I didn't mention, and let us know what you think. Thanks. All right, well, why don't we go on to my second track then? That is Sinister Woods. And I should point out that a lot of these tracks, particularly the ones that are used in the actual dungeons, are shared between multiple dungeons. Sinister Woods is is used in a couple other uh, places. But sort of the the notes I had for this are um, the word menacing. And actually, uh, the thing that struck me the most about this one is uh, sort of the chaotic strings because there's it starts off there is this sort of you feel like something could com- be coming at you from anywhere uh, which is obviously kind of a thing in a in a darkish forest something you have to sort of deal with and th- and then the strings come in and they're just like sort of reflect a, a certain amount of I mean I said chaotic but chaos 
in there. Uh, Anne, how did this one kind of strike you? Well, it was very interesting because in some places, especially at the beginning of the loop, it's it doesn't feel sinister. It feels very mysterious and it's got a lot of higher notes and like a lot of um, instrumentation that gives it almost a discovery quality. Like it, it's an enchanted wood. Maybe it's a bit good. Maybe it's a bit bad. I don't know. We're discovering. And then the violin comes in and it's sinister again. So it is, is a track that plays with you a little bit. Um, chaos is definitely a good way to describe it. It does feel like anything could happen. You could you could get lost out here in this enchanted woods. You could get led away by the fairies. You could end up in a Pokemon battle and fight for your life. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I, I do kind of like it. I'm not sure, to be honest, the radio person in me, it may not be the best radio track because it is supposed to be rather unsettling mm. by design. Because, uh, you know, whenever you're in a dungeon, you're never really safe in this game. And, and that's one thing <laughs> you'll find is that most of these dungeon themes are not super triumphant, happy places. That's mostly reserved for the town that's in the game and, and, the, and the rescue team base and stuff like that. Because you're never really safe in one of these games. But uh, that is what kind of struck me there. I, it's also, like I said, used in a couple other places. Uh, I think it's the the buried relic later in the game also uses it for like the first part of it at least. And, and I also want to kind of call this out. Uh, in the remake that came out last year, uh, some of the samples are they, the tracks are actually pretty faithful, uh, but a lot of the sampled instruments are noticeably improved. And I, I think the string sample, uh, the string part here sounds a bit, a fair bit more natural. Not quite up there with, you know, I can tell it's synth and not a real thing there. But I think it adds even more personality to this track in the, in the remake that came out last year. All right. Well, Anne, let's talk about another one of yours. This is Silent Chasm. Let's see. Um, I, I put down uh, that it was had a very echoey feel to it. Uh, what were your kind of thoughts? Um, yeah, my, my first thought was that this is less silent than I would have expected. But I think kind of how it conveys that silence through through sound, through a musical track, is that there's a lot of times in this uh, track where instruments will just drop out and kind of highlight one or two little trills of instruments or an instrument that's carrying the melody, I guess. Um, but like, it, then it'll be like some really heavy bass and like, you know, music, 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 and then drop out. And there'll be just kind of one instrument that sticks out. And there's a lot of Vox synths of like echoey voices and things. So even though there is sound all around you in a musical track, it does give you a sense of like, being alone in like a, a ravine or something and echoes and, you know, so quiet that only one sound sticks out kind of a thing. So I thought that was very clever. Yeah, the the main thing I noticed, uh, I, I think you're right about the, it. I would call it sparse structurally. It's like um, certainly not super lush or anything like that. Mm. But I noted down the, the bells or xylophones or marimba, the, those types of parts in there. Which is one thing, those are very echoey instruments, I, I tend to think. Um, and I think that gives it its feel. Did, did you notice that as well? Yeah, like, yeah, like the, there's a lot going on in this track to like convey silence with the use of sound. And I think, yeah, the instruments they chose are a huge part of that. Cause like, as you say, the marimba and the xylophone, they're instruments where you strike and then it vibrates versus like a string you pluck and it vibrates but like there's just something about that that hit um rather than say the blowing of air through a brass instrument that's just very visceral and like as it just conveys sound in a particular way that can suggest silence yeah i do wonder what um what what pops into a composer's head when they're they're told they have to write music for something that has like the word silent in its name like this like like silent chasm here i don't know it 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 seems like the, there's a bit of a disconnect linguistically there but it, <laughs> they did seem to come up with something that sort of fits the bill mhm mm yeah something like i said just very clever 
All right, well, let's move on to my third track. This is Great Canyon. And uh, I put down a few stylistic notes for this one. First of all, it has a Western migration sound and also possibly some Native American influence. Yes, there are some, uh, there is some baggage to the kind of the use of those terms and their place in history. We'll kind of set that aside for the time being. But this is, this song gave me a real journey type of vibe there. It's got some really great uh, low instruments and stuff like that. It's, despite the fact that I use the word Western there, it does stand out, I think at least, very much from some of the music we talked about with uh, the Pokemon Coliseum and XD Gale of Darkness, which have a a Southwestern-type setting and some definite Western tracks, but from a very different point of view musically than this one. And I'm I'm sorry that was kind of a jumble of thoughts there, but... uh, What's kind of your uh, your opinion on that? Um, in a similar vein, it, it definitely the second you hear it, it e- it evokes like Western style music. Like you hear that, and no, that's what you think. And yet, it is something different as well. A- and I'm I wrote in my notes like that. This is just some amazing layering of instruments in this composition, and and there's something about these chords. And the flute sound that makes me feel like there's a little bit of Celtic, but not in here. And like like I said, it feels Western, but it also feels like something else. So that it's like you instantly get a feel for landscape and canyon and, you know, traveling across a great distance and towards the West and the sand but also something that's very not stereotypical. It's its own thing. And yeah, like this music like took me places. It just felt so beautiful. And in some places, like I said, the, these chords are very special. And I would love to like look at uh, the sheet music for all these instruments and find out what they all were. And, you know, what were all these notes in here? Because they, they took me on a little journey. Yeah, so... That that one has always stuck in my head. I know that, like, back when I was running PIRN back in the day, that this is one of the ones I definitely recorded off of my DS to put on the station, and it has stuck with me uh, ever since. I'm not sure if any other ones in there uses. There might be one or two, but it's definitely associated. And this is, you know, to be honest, a very important dungeon, if you can call it that, I guess, uh, in the game. Because you're going to meet one of the uh, important characters, a Zatu, who is you know sort of a a seer of sorts. So they're like we said, some of the the cultural aspects might be in some cases a little problematic, uh, but we are kind of and we are kind of setting that aside for the moment. But it sort of does tie into that motif. Mm. All right. Well, Anne, you have one more track you've picked out, Escaped Through the Snow. So we aren't going to spoil the whole game by any point, but there is <laughs> part of the game where you and your partner, you're a team of two uh, for most of the game, are on the run from uh, some of the other characters after being you know, falsely accused of some stuff. But this track comes in during that arc of the story. Uh, Anne, uh, what made you pick this one out? Okay, so first of all, it's just beautiful. It's soft and it's delicate and um it just has a way of like evoking cold. It's such a beautiful sweet little track, but it also like for escape through the snow and for how heavy some of the stuff going on in this point of the game is, it feels less like oh, high tension escape and more like we're we've we have escaped we're going to be safe now and i thought that was an interesting choice that rather than play into the like the high tension or the sadness they kind of went for something that was a little bit more beautiful and bittersweet so i thought that was a interesting choice yeah one thing i i came up with the word for this was crystalline uh because mm-hmm. You know, this is a a snow level, of course, but it definitely does not go for anything remotely um, resembling holiday music whatsoever. 
<laughs> and in fact, neither do there are several snow dungeons or ice dungeons in this game, and none of them really actually go for that. Part of that is the sort of the, the musical direction of the game, because the holiday music is is quite cheerful, and not that all the music in this game is sad, but it does, like we said earlier, try to convey that sense that you're never really safe whenever you're out in the dungeons. The dungeons are dangerous places if you don't know what you're doing. But I wanted to sort of compare that to the Crown Tundra expansion, which I think uh, we, we've brought that up, is a, is a rather similar to this in some ways in, in terms of like instrument choice and also, like we said, not trying to be holiday music in any way, shape, or form. It's more supposed to be like a desolate landscape. I assume, I, I hope you found uh, those uh, adjectives or whatever to be agreeable, and it sounds like you do. I Yeah, no, I would totally agree, and I, I think there's definitely a theme going in a lot of the tracks where, I don't know, I guess the expected choice is not the route they took with a lot of these things, and again, that's just something about this game that makes it special. Hmm. At the same time, though, it does work for this place. Like I said, mm-hmm. especially since you are on, on the run there, you know, and, and you're in, and particularly in that part of it, you're in danger, not just from whatever Pokemon are in the dungeon, but some of the other characters in the game that are on your tail, so to speak. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there are, to be honest, a ton of other tracks we could have chosen. I'm going to post up a comment that we got in the chat room. So one comment we got from RuneGate is thoughts on Sky Tower. So uh, without spoiling too much, Sky Tower is one of the dungeons you'll go through towards the end of the main story of the game. There is a fair bit of post-content in this, as, as there are in a lot of modern R- RPGs. But Sky Tower, I just want to sort of talk about briefly, is sort of the last major dungeon in the main story of the game. And... You know, there you're actually climbing up into the sky, and it has a very celestial feel. So not entirely dissimilar to the ice level we were talking about, but still going for something a little bit different. Um, Anne, uh, do you have any particular thoughts on that track? I just wanted to sort of put that out there for uh, just a moment. Well, yeah, since it came up in the chat, I I didn't have a a chance to go... um... <laughs> re-listen and get like a lot of detailed thoughts on it but yes it's just so uplifting and lofty i guess but like i don't know just ugh, it, it's beautiful and it's like such an emotional part of the game like this is this is the part where we're all we're all crying a little <laughs> it's it's a beautiful track yeah, definitely one of the other stands out and one I definitely recorded back in the day for use on the station. So definitely one of my favorites there. It's also another one that I think benefits a fair bit from the uh, the DX remake on the Switch, uh, that they can improve some of the sampled instruments there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let, let's sort of talk about the our overall opinions on the music of this game. I have a few notes down for that. Um First of all, as we mentioned, although there are some through lines uh, between some of the tracks and places they go to several times musically, they really do a good job of having a diverse soundtrack here. And I, you know, that's one of the things that's easier to do in video games that have a wide variety of settings like this one than, say, uh, a more confined game or especially like a movie or something like that is going to have a, a more confined soundtrack so that in a way for a video game that's something they can get away with a little bit more but it's definitely something i appreciate and we had sort of talked about this a little bit earlier but uh i I assume it's something you also really like about this game yes uh yeah like i just i love that it is both um it it hits a lot of as you say a lot of different genres a lot of different moods a lot of different locations and yet it never really like goes for the stereotypical choice and it has a lot of influences from the two composers that are very much their own and and so it kind of makes the soundtrack as a whole its own beautiful thing it, it's just so like i it's i'm having trouble putting it into words but it's a very creative soundtrack and it's i i can see why it moved so many people yeah and uh 
I also wanted to call it the, we've talked about sort of the melodies and stuff, but there's a lot of thematic elements. Obviously, the main theme that you hear during the intro sequence and on the title screen is used in a number of different tracks and also throughout the series. The the dream stuff there is also kind of shared with some of the, um, with like the personality survey. So there are some definite melodic through lines, but also most of the tracks, including like a zillion we did not get to, six and even seven is is really not enough to do this game justice. Uh, but we didn't want to be here all night. But uh, many of the tracks uh, have very good, uh, memorable uh, lines. And that'll be a, a theme... <laughs> Sorry to use that term again, but going forward, when we cover the other games in this side series, uh, and I mm-hmm. assume you kind of agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. <laughs> so going again back to our technical discussion of this, it's also got that kind of very like low-level chiptune, but also sampled instrument combination, which I found very interesting. And, and that was, like I said, probably largely designed largely the result of the fact that this was a dual platform GBA and DS release for this. And, you know, I think generally they do a pretty good job of meshing those. There may be a few cases where it doesn't work quite as well, but I I think it generally works pretty well despite that limitation. I don't know if this was originally envisioned as just a DS game or what, but... And do you have any particular thoughts there? I know you're not as as hardware-based as I am, but... Right, yeah. So I, yeah, I can't speak to the hardware. Like as far as the final presentation, you know, hitting me as a consumer, I agree. I think they did an excellent job um, with the situation they had and and the technology they have, and it's it's very creative. It's very beautiful. I will say, like, uh, is it okay if we like talk about the remake yet, or are we saving that for later? That is kind of the next point I wanted to bring up here, because the remake actually plays things very safe. In fact, like if you listen to it, most of the instruments that were done using like the low level, like uh, going all the way back to the original Game Boy uh, sound hardware that was built into the GBA and therefore also available to the DS... That stuff, it might be a little bit clearer and a little bit different, but it's still pretty close to that. Um, The real big change there is actually a lot of the sampled instruments. I think they tried to use roughly the same samples, but they sound better. They can do a little bit more with them in the engine. But they did actually, in in that remake that came out last year, play it very safe. Um, As opposed to something like when you have completely different sound hardware. Like my default go-to for like a remake is always going to probably be Super Mario All-Stars on the Super Nintendo, where obviously the Super Nintendo and the NES have very different sound hardware. And thus there they were kind of forced to. But here they were able to sort of mimic that older sound hardware, but also kind of get the, the newer samples, which produces a very interesting effect. But it's also not a case where they rewrote everything to redo all the music from scratch either which I find to be an interesting choice. And I, I'm not sure what your thoughts are in that area. Right. Um, so everything about, like, you know, the difference between, like, keeping the same hardware, like, that's something I can't really speak to. But as for, again, the end result hitting the consumer, to me, like, the difference is night and day. And it makes me wonder, like, Again, it sounds lovely on, and it's like very memorable on uh, the original Mystery Dungeon, but hearing the remake version with, again, those sampled instruments being able to kind of just sound full and, and, oh, just like it, it just hits different. <laughs> and, and my heart hurts. And like, it's just, oh, it's, it's just a very different feeling. And I love it. And I do wonder if, like, in the middle of composing, if this is the sound they envisioned or not, or if there was something a little closer to this, um, because it just like I can hear everything, and it's just a very different sound, but it's still that same original composition that's that's hitting you. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the you know hardware geek in me kind of wants to make actually a couple comparisons here. In that, like, if you're comparing, like, just the DS version to 
like just the sampled side of things between like the DS version and the Switch remake, it honestly kind of reminds me there are a handful of games that were ported uh, or had their music ported at least from the TurboGrafx-16 CD, uh, a system that because it's CD-based allows you to use what's called Redbook Audio, which is basically the audio format that's used on audio CDs in-game. And when those were ported to like the Super Nintendo, there are a couple examples like uh, Rondo of Blood got kind of a port-ish on the Super Nintendo. That, that's a, a weird story in itself, like or or Valis Four, which are, are names. That second one probably flew nothing personal and directly over your head, and that's okay. Or it kind of reminds me of like back in the day when. Um, you know, pre-2000s when computers, especially on the PC side, would have different sound cards where, like, the Game Boy Advance is sort of the low-level, like, maybe better than the built-in PC speaker, but not by much. Um, and then, like, the 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 DS is sort of the mid-range sound card, and then, like, the, the Switch is, like, that super high-level, like, full MIDI compatibility type of deal that has every little bell and whistle on there as a sound device, like uh, something that's not even technically like more of a MIDI device than a um, an actual like game sound card. So that's kind of how I feel about those and how I sort of draw the, the line from like the GBA version to the DS version to the Switch remake in my head. So I don't know. It sounds like I figured that part of it would be interesting, Anne. I think uh, I'm going to have to re-listen to this several times, this part of our discussion, to get the full, <laughs> the full effect or the full understanding on that one. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to explain it for us. <laughs> All right. Well, with that music portion of the discussion out of the way... We do have one more third-generation side game that we're going to cover, and that will obviously be our next discussion. That is going to be Pokemon Ranger for the Nintendo DS. As far as North American release order, it did come a little bit, a, a few months after this one. And, um, you know, that's certainly not as popular a side series since it only really existed on the DS, but it definitely has its own little musical style and some thematic elements. And, you know, it did tie into a movie we discussed a couple of years ago. Pokemon Ranger and the Temple of the Sea has a, was kind of a loose tie-in. They also wanted, to, I guess, to make a, a big deal out of that one. Didn't go quite as far as Mystery Dungeon, for sure. But that will be our next discussion. Um, until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. All right, well, as impressive as the music is, there's a lot of game stuff I want to do here in this bonus segment as well. First off, um, Anne, it turns out you weren't super familiar with this term, but this this is called a roguelike. As I kind of explained, this is a, that ties back to like a late 70s, early 80s text-based PC game where you would go around a dungeon that was randomly generated and so on and so forth. You know, this game has many of those trappings with a Pokemon skin applied, although, you know, it, the original Rogue especially is, is well known for its difficulty. This one still has some tough moments you can run into where your your team can get wiped out relatively quickly if you, um, <laughs> especially on like your first attempt. Did you have experiences like that? Uh, yeah, there were a few places where I got, um, you know, stuck in a dungeon and like just could not get out. Um uh, I'm trying to think of like where some of the I I feel like the Grand Canyon or the Grand Canyon um the Great Canyon the the Great Canyon there we go I feel like that was one place where I I remember being stuck but yeah like I didn't find it terribly difficult for the most part but you're right like there were definitely moments where it was just like okay I can't pass this dungeon I can't get out of this area yeah, definitely the original time I played through it, I had a, a at least a couple 
fails there. The like the remake uh, smooths over some of the difficulty curve, and I actually kind of recommend that. Even though, like, if you have a Wii U, the original games are on the virtual console there for pretty cheap. I actually kind of recommend that if you haven't played these games, that you play the the remake instead. Just because I think there's a, a lot of things that were improved in later Mystery Dungeon games that are carried over into into that remake. I do want to point out, uh, mild story slash gameplay spoiler, um, you're going to fight the legendary birds in here, so it might be a good idea not to pick one of the grass starters <laughs> as your <laughs> for your team there, because you are, are going to have some real issues if, if that's what you go with there. We all love a challenge. <laughs> so there are some, some parts that can be very difficult, uh, especially as you're still trying to learn the mechanics. The, the traps in the game can be... Uh, very difficult to get around. I think that's something also that you have better options for in the later games to deal with. I'm sure you've had some encounters with the various types of those in the game, right, Anne? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's been a while since I I've owned and played this game, but yes, <laughs> it can, it can be a, certainly a fair bit intimidating in that regard, especially for a Pokemon game that is not regarded even you know in the earlier days as not the necessarily most difficult uh series so uh, another thing that gets a lot of talk uh talked about a lot is the story now the story in the mystery dungeon games is always kind of follows a very similar arc um where you're a human that has been transformed into a pokemon to uh and then inserted into this world that consists pretty much entirely of pokemon and there's eventually at some point there's some sort of existential crisis within the world just to kind of spoil it in this game i guess is that there's a meteorite headed towards the the world that's going to destroy everything unless they can find a way to destroy it first um but the other games have some sort of similar um mechanic or or not even usually an explicit villain, usually some sort of uh, disaster that's about to befall the world or stuff like that. So they do follow a very similar arc, um, but there, there's definitely some character interaction in there that I think in many cases goes above and beyond, certainly the first couple generations of games. To be honest, I think not as a result of the side series popularity, I think it has had a fair effect on some of the main series games in terms of trying to flesh out the characters more and stuff like that. And it's had some effect on the music probably as well. Not that the music was terrible. There's some great tunes in the earlier Pokemon games, but I'm sure it has it pushed them harder and stuff like that on, on that end as well. But going back to the story aspect, I don't know, Anne, where are your kind of, uh, how do you kind of feel about that? I, it's just very, Surprising, and I don't want to say like main series games don't have like nuanced plots and like very poignant things to say because uh, a lot of them do. But this was a game that just, um, I don't know, just I maybe it's just from the playing from the Pokemon's perspective or I don't know, being a character who who talks occasionally. I don't know, there's just something about it that feels very, very personal and like traveling with a partner, like you get to feel something for the other characters and the NPCs around you that maybe you don't as much in the main series. And it it just has a lot of very um, sad and personal feelings, like the part where they run you out, out of town, uh, the part where you question in yourself if you are a selfish human who abandoned a Pokemon, the part where Gardevoir talks about her they're very complicated feelings uh, towards their human trait. Like, there's just so much going on in this game that is very relatable to us as humans in the world that I think really resonated with the people who played it. It was sad. It was it was hard at times, and it didn't always resolve happily. And I don't know. It was just it, it was a, a game that let you experience a lot of these very complicated things that um, the Pokemon world is perfectly set up to have us explore. So it was very special in that way. Yeah, the the human turned into Pokemon thing is interesting, just because I think this is the side series that humanizes the Pokemon the most, which is 
an interesting thing to say, I suppose. I am always on team the Pokemon have their own culture and are a little bit more intelligent than the human characters give them credit for. <laughs> yeah, that's a discussion in and of itself. But uh, let's sort of talk about right. some, <laughs> some of the structure of, of the of the game. Uh, most of the time what you're doing, if you're not going through a story-based dungeon, you're completing missions that are either sent to your mailbox or taken from the board that appears in the... Um, to the east of the town square. And there's all sorts of stuff there. Sometimes you just have to go in and find a Pokemon on a specific floor and rescue them. Other times you have to take a, a, a bit, some, uh, some object to them or find some object that's on a specific floor. Sometimes what you have to do is uh, the dreaded escort mission where you have to take a Pokemon to a specific Pokemon on another floor of the dungeon. Um, that is one thing that I think the remake vastly makes a, a, a lot more fair. <laughs> I, I don't know if you had anything on the on the mission types you wanted to put out there, but I figured I'd, I'd sort of start with that outlay. Escort missions are hard and sad and horrible. <laughs> it's just 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 go where I tell you. I <laughs> I I was not good at them. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, but the, it wasn't because of my problem. It was the character I was escorting's problem, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah escort missions can be pretty hard. Uh, the The reason the remake <laughs> is a little bit easier in that regard is that I think in the original game, they're always like level one. So just about any hit that, that the escort E takes will result in a knockout, which means you usually have to have a lot of reviver seeds. It, they're not super strong in the remake, but uh, over the course of the subseries, they've made them... A little less frail, which is kind of nice there. <laughs> to, to continue talking about the remake, um, like I said, this is pretty much... I, I, I am still hoping maybe next year we'll get that Pokemon Pinball remake slash expansion. I would love that. <laughs> but um, the remake, I think, you know, it, it obviously does the music a little more... Uh, it has more advanced hardware to work with than even the you know original DS... But the graphics in the remake, I, I do want to call that out. I think the uh, graphics in the original are just kind of okay and and fairly, to be honest, a fair bit on the bland side. That's something they definitely um, improved there. But um, sort of the progression of the series is that the first two games on the Game Boy Advance and DS use sprite-based artwork. The two games on the 3DS use 3D models for the Pokemon in there. And then the remake does use 3D models, but it goes for, rather than a straight-up 3D rendered art style like you would see in the mainline games, um, especially like Sword and Shield, um, it goes for very much a, a hand-drawn slash colored pencil look in there. What are your kind of thoughts in, in that area? Um. Well, they're all... I, like, I would say... I, other than the last one, the colored pencil, like, that's the one that to me is the most unique. I'm not really, like, terribly bothered, like, one is better than the other. I do love that they're trying something new, though, that, that the, each game kind of tries to explore something different. I think that this is a game that could get away with that a lot more than like, like there was such backlash in some of the main series games when they, you know, stopped being the sprite characters or when they, you know, started changing the view so you're more of the 3D. And and I admit, like, you expect, like, the main series game to look a certain way. I feel like Mystery Dungeon, just the nature of the game it is, has a lot more room to be creative and to be like, okay, let's try this type of, the this type of view, these type of characters. I don't know, character renderings and, like I said, to to explore something very different. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the remake art style. It, it helps it set it apart because, you know, when it first did the first 3DS one, Gates to Infinity was there really, certainly before any mainline. It was definitely there before X and Y because it's based on the fifth generation Pokemon games. It helps set it apart from some of the other stuff, which I think we've definitely seen in some of the other side games, especially some of the mobile stuff like um, like Pokemon Masters has a very different art style um, than some of the other stuff. So it definitely helps set it apart. And I just want to call out to our, our chat room there. We've got uh, Andrico 
just giving a shout out to the remake as well. Like I said earlier, I think I would, if you're getting into this, if you haven't played the original, like maybe you've played some of the later stuff or on the 3DS or whatever, I would actually say, even though it's going to, assuming you have a Wii U, it's going to cost you more to buy the remake on Switch. I think that is the best way to play this particular game. I think aesthetically, as much as I have a soft spot for sprite work, I actually really like what they've done artistically with the remake. I don't necessarily want the main series games to straight up copy that. Greetings from Greece. Thank you very much. We always appreciate it, especially since it is very early in the morning there. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I really like that. It also manages to speed things up and streamline a lot of stuff. It makes very good use of the additional buttons they have on the Switch and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's a it's a remake that doesn't pad things out really. It manages to run as fast or faster really. So I I really recommend that. Okay, well there's one more thing we definitely got to talk about with this one. So we mentioned that they pushed this a little harder than some of the other side games. Well, when this originally came out, first off there was an animated, I guess you could call it a short. I think it was about as long as a regular anime episode. Uh, I forget exactly what it was called, but it has the, uh, it starts off, it goes through the Skarmarine or near the beginning of the game. It has that kind of, uh, thing to it. Um, there was also a manga that tied in, um, to the Rescue Team games, which was pretty So They definitely pushed this one harder than some of the other side games have. So I wanted to sort of, you know, put it out there. Um, would this be, we've talked about this with some of the other side series, would this be a good candidate if they wanted to do a movie adaptation or something like that? I think some folks had hoped that there would at least be like a TV series spinoff since Pokemon doesn't really have that much of a proper spinoff, which is a bit odd for a TV show that's run as long and been as popular as it is. And what are your kind of thoughts there? I mean, if there was ever a candidate, like, I would have expected Mystery Dungeon before Detective Pikachu. Since Detective Pikachu was a lovely smash hit home run, I can't see why Mystery Dungeon wouldn't be. Like, I think more than a movie, a TV show seems like it would be the perfect place for it because the rescue missions can be very episodic in nature. And yeah, and again, it does something that the main series anime doesn't do, um, which you wouldn't want it, them to infringe upon each other and like basically take each other's audience and, and ratings, etc. But because it, it is just a very different scenario um, than the rest of the Pokemon world that everyone else is inhabiting, yeah, the opportunities just abound for Mystery Dungeon to spin off into something <laughs> a, a children's novel series i don't know <laughs> i do know that some folks were a little weirded out watching the short with having pokemon that are not legendary mythical or meowth talk <laughs> so that was a little bit of an adjustment for there you know going back to uh you know if they wanted to make a cgi mystery dungeon movie this is sort of a, a I don't know if backhanded compliment is the right word. It's probably the whatever the inverse of that uh, somewhat uh, hidden insult or whatever. But uh, if you remember the reaction to Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution, some folks didn't like the CGI at all. But if you look sort of at the average, folks were generally okay with the, the environments and generally okay okay with the way the Pokemon look, they were not so thrilled, generally speaking, with humans. Those generally got the, the lowest marks when people reviewed that movies. So there is a temptation there to say, hey, CGI division of Oriental Light and Magic, think this would be a pretty good project for you while you're still trying to hammer out what humans should look like in the CG. So before you ever try and remake The Power of One, maybe you could make it an original mystery dungeon movie or something like that, or an adaptation. As I mentioned earlier, the stories have this kind of very common arc where you're a human transformed into a Pokemon to solve and eventually some sort of catastrophe or whatever comes along and has to be defeated. 
They could certainly bring in some of the characters, like uh, the Wigglytuff that appears in various forms throughout the series and some of the other ones on there. Certainly the Kecleon. Uh, shopkeepers, would you would want to keep those in there if you ever did an adaptation. But if you want to do something that would be, you know, play to your strengths, um, maybe this would be it. I don't know. And... Like I said, I did kind of throw shade at OLM's uh, CGI uh, studio or department or whatever. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, you know, I would agree. Um, less in a sense of, like, the level of CGI being good or bad. Like, we, I think I've said enough on Mewtwo Evolutions how I feel about that. But, like, part of the, rea- the visceral reaction of disgust that some people had like is based on the fact that this beloved movie that you're remaking has a very distinctive art style that we've grown accustomed to and love in the same way that every time Ken Sugimori changes his character design everyone kind of like goes in a tizzy that Ash looks different like so to take that style out of like again Mewtwo Strikes Back or The Power of One or like these properties that have very visual images and very distinct styles already take it to mystery dungeon which is a a new situation and it's all pokemon like i think people would care a lot less about the the quality they'd be a lot more okay with um exploring the pokemon world with a new visual um lens so there's that but as as you say the Pokemon and the landscapes just looked a lot better than the humans. Perfect, perfect place to play around to their strengths. So I think there's a lot working for it to make Mystery Dungeon a perfect vehicle if they want to try expanding their CGI department and like really, really pushing that part of the company. So yeah, and technically speaking, they wouldn't have to necessarily go with the the Pokemon art style that they use in Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution. They could. You know, take a page from that remake that came out last year and use that as the style of the movie. That's one thing, especially if this were to, be, were to be a stereoscopic 3D movie. You know, you look at stuff like Coraline or the fantastic Mr. Fox using an alternative art style for the CG there or stop motion in the case of some of those other movies can really pay off and give you a very different feeling in there. So that might be worth trying as well. Maybe that was something that one of the reasons they went with that. Who knows? Certainly, if I were you know a movie studio and I were trying to pick from different side series, um, obviously there's the Snap sequel that just came out, but Mystery Dungeon would sound like a pretty good candidate to me. So it'll be interesting to see what they do next. I don't think that like the next Mystery Dungeon that comes out maybe in a year or two will be a remake of. Um, the Explorers uh, trilogy or trio or whatever you want to call it, I think they'll probably do something original and then maybe save a remake of Explorers until later this decade or whatever. But um, I think we're going to see more of it in the future. The uh, the remake sold about a million and a half copies, which is certainly not Sword and Shield or Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee numbers. But I think we're going to see more of this side series in in the years to come. Mm-hmm. 